Hey, if, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first um, seven verses. Today we, um, we are beginning a new series titled Together We Believe. And over the next five weeks, what we'll be looking at is the five solas. Now, the five solas are five Latin phrases or slogans that really emerged from the Protestant Reformation. And this, uh, these five solas were really intended to summarize the Reformers' basic theological and doctrinal principles in contrast to certain teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And so these solas, which in Latin means alone or or only are, are the five things that together they believed these core uh, statements were the truth from scripture that would set us apart in our belief. And so those five um, from the Latin are sola gratia, which is by grace alone that we'll be looking at today. And then also what we'll be looking at over the next four weeks after is sola fida, which is by faith alone, solus Christus, which is through Christ alone, Sola Scriptura, which is by Scripture alone, and Soli Dio Gloria, which is glory to God alone. And, and so really for us to understand the, the Reformation, because this is a part of our own history, uh, for us, we, we come out of that, uh, that separation from Roman Catholic Church to Protestant Reformation. There, there's really several men that, that helped us along in this um, in, in this kind of veering off from in this belief. But the first that I want to mention is one that is probably really well known, really popular, and that's Martin Luther. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther, who was born in 1483. He was born a, a peasant in Germany. He became a monk and a priest in the Catholic Church. And in the Catholic Church, he studied theology. He became a, a biblical theologian. And by training, he was a great leader in the Catholic Church at the time. And Luther saw in this time, he saw great corruption and abuse from the church. Because the church at the time was selling tickets of indulgences, which is where people could basically buy their forgiveness of their sins for money, and that would gain them access to heaven, both for them and their deceased family or relatives. And then also many people didn't understand the sermons that were being taught and the things that were being communicated from the pulpit because it was in Latin and not everyone understood Latin. And so because of this, ordinary people did not know very much about Christianity. And then also because of the corruption within the Catholic Church at the time, religious posts, many were, were often sold to whoever was willing to pay the most money. It, it was just kind of a, a, a subcontract to whoever had the most. So this led to even further co uh, uh, confusion in the pulpit and in the preachers. And so Luther really thought that the church had gone too far away from the original teachings of scripture and that the church should return to its roots and give more weight to what was written in the Bible. And so on 1517, on October 31st, if you're looking for another reason to celebrate Halloween, uh, Martin Luther nailed a list of grievances against the Catholic Church onto the door of the chapel in Wittenberg, Germany. And on his grievances was a 95 thesis that, that really were his grievances, a list of what he was uh, against, of what they were teaching. And this really became the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. And out of that, that's where we really see the denomination then rise up uh, of the Lutheran church. 
And so from that was born Lutheranism. And then came Yolrich. And Yolrich was Swiss. He was a mercenary soldier and a political activist. He, he really kind of differed from Luther on, on some of the sacraments and on Christian works and some of those views, but they really aligned on these solas. They're really believing that these were the five alone statements that ultimately would separate them from the Roman Catholic Church. And then finally, one of the three, there were several others, but these are just the three I'm going to highlight for you this morning for you to understand some of this history of where we're coming from is that the third man named is John Calvin. Much later in 1509, John Calvin was born. He was a French layman who had studied theology in Paris with the intention of the priesthood before then changing to go and practice law. And he also studied classical languages and received a thorough humanist education. But as God does, he, he really captured John Calvin's heart. And Calvin then began to write many things about this Reformation, really gave the Protestant Reformation the, the robust uh, knowledge that we have today. And, and his work is well known in the theological circle as Calvinism, or as some would say now, uh, reform Calvinism out of that. But, but what I want really for us to understand as I share all this history with you, not all of this is a happy story. It really, out of this came death, division, and great disagreement. And so as we look at this series of what happened in the reformers' lives and why they separated themselves from the Catholic Church, what I want you to really understand from day one is this series is not about elevating the reformers themselves. It's about looking at the truth from Scripture and the character of God that they so strongly held to. And so as we look at this together, this first sola, we see that it is by grace alone that we are saved and set free to live in gospel grace. If you're filling in the blanks, if you're taking notes, those are your fill in the blanks for this morning, for the whole morning. That it is by grace alone that we are saved and set free to live in gospel grace. And so one of the passages of scripture that was so uh, dominant for the reformers when they looked at this was Ephesians 2. And so we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back corner over here, and it'll also be on the screen behind me. Starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, what, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So as we look at this first sola, it's by grace alone. And so as we look at grace, God's grace is really his unmerited favor and undeserved kindness that he gives to us. And so really for us, we're able to enter into a relationship with him only because of his grace towards us. 
And, and so really the reality of God's grace is that although he could have destroyed or disowned us a long time ago, he's chosen to extend his grace to us. And so the grace of God is absolutely incredible, both for the believer and for the non-believer. And one of the things that reveals how incredible God's grace is, is if we look at the state in which we were in before Christ. Paul says earlier in the text that we just read that we were dead in our trespasses. So it's not that before Christ, we were just kind of struggling in this non-Christ way. It's not that we were in waiting for salvation. No, we were dead. We were absolutely dead and without. And so the word dead here refers to the state of being separated from God. This is in fact the same Greek word that is used in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 verse 24, when the father says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So Paul's use of the metaphor of death here is significant because Paul's making it clear that there is no middle ground. He's making it clear that there is either death or there is life. And just as a dead body can't respond to stimuli on its own, the spiritually dead person cannot respond to spiritual stimuli unless enabled to do so. And so what this tells us then is it's only God who provides this ability. So what that means is that God acted first on our behalf because the dead are not capable of reviving themselves. So for us to have life in Christ, God moved towards us in love and in grace. And he extended that to us. We see this also when Paul is writing to the Romans in Romans chapter five, verse eight. He says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, now what Paul says also earlier in, in chapter five there is that someone would, would probably not even die for a righteous person, just be willing to give up their life, let alone someone that was completely ungodly. And yet God died for us while we were still sinners. And so gr- the grace of God extended, extended to us really means that salvation starts with God, not with man. That it starts with God, that he takes the initiative, that he makes the first move. And if God didn't make the first move, you would never make any move at all. This is what we've talked about before. This is the reality of the difference between our own human nature and, and the nature and character of God, that you chose hell, but God chose heaven that you chose damnation, but God chose salvation, that you chose to run from God, but God chose to run after you through sending Jesus. See, this is one of the beautiful truths of the Bible, that it's always been God reaching out to man, not man reaching to God. And so our reaching back to God is just a response of his pursuit of us. So it's by God's grace alone, that is what saves us. Not, not our own efforts, not our own works, but it's God's grace alone. And so ultimately, in all of this series, in all of the believer's life, the core theme and the, the truth that needs to be understood and held so tightly is that it's God alone at work. It's by his work, by his effort, not by ours. And, and so we are not saved by what we do or, or by who we are. We're saved by who he is and what he does that's grace. 
And so it's by his grace that we are saved. See, one of the main issues for the reformers was that salvation was viewed as something that you earned or that you bought. So this is why the doctrine of grace is so important because we, we've done nothing and we can do nothing to earn or buy our own salvation. This is what Paul reminds us of in verse five that we read, that it's by grace we have been saved. It's not by anything else. But really, regardless of this text, there really becomes two uh, dominant views of how we view salvation. And this happens both back in the reformers day and our day today. That most, if not all, religions and spiritualities, apart from Christianity, really teach something called works. And they may call it something else. They may call it uh, uh, moralism, or, or they may call it um, uh, the, the, the working out of our belief. But really, it's the idea that you can save yourself by doing certain things and not doing other things. And then in some of those belief systems, the idea is that if you do well enough, you then can become your own deity. You can become your own God. But the reality is that this then just becomes this do this, don't do that, so that you will be saved from whatever fate is set before you. And so this type of view becomes really dangerous because it really what it causes us and forces us into is this seeking out of God plus fill in the blank. It really doesn't push us towards the presence of God. It just really pushes us towards, man, what are the parts of God I can get close enough to salvation and keep working on? And so really our dependence needs to not be on these things of works, but upon Jesus Christ, who is the perfect example, who in fact, scripture says is full of this grace and full of truth. John chapter one, verse 14 describes Jesus. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, see, I think the, the hard thing is uh, we're, we're in such a works-based culture um, that, that often we, we unintentionally form that into our Christianity. And, and I think for some of us, if we kind of have that debtor's view, uh, um, I can't just receive something um, as is, I can't receive something that's extended to me in love and with grace. I have to work for that. Um, then what happens is then we, we really believe in that truth aspect um, and we just kind of sprinkle it with, with some grace around that. And so for me, um, when I, I've shared this with you before, when I first uh, became a pastor and, and especially in my uh, days of leading college ministry, uh, college boys need to be kicked around a lot, but I was more of, of just kind of that um, drill sergeant from the pulpit, like, uh, you know, put your boots on, make up your bed, let's drive into the battle and die under the glory of God. That was kind of my approach to Christianity. And, and then God just began to wreck my heart really uh, well in that. that. Then it just kind of was moved towards the Father's heart. Man, God, how do I extend your grace? Show the, the, the true sin and depravity that, that we have and how much we need you. How do I walk through that with your people? And so I remember reading John chapter one, verse 14, and seeing that it said that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And I just felt the Holy Spirit really convict me. It hit me like a ton of bricks when I just heard the Holy Spirit say, David, you've reversed those. You're all about truth with a little bit of grace. But that's not who Jesus is. 
And so really I made it about my own works. This is all the truth that I know. This is all the robust knowledge and theology that I can work up. And after my works, there's, there's grace when I fail. There, there's grace in, a, in the midst of it, but it wasn't true grace. It was just a cheap grace. And so really Christianity is different than, than any other belief because we're not saved by our works. By any of these works, we're saved by Jesus's works, by his works alone. So this is really an important gospel distinction because if not for Jesus's works, all we have is our own efforts and our own works, which in the end ultimately gains us nothing. But this is really the good news of the gospel that we are saved by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We're saved by his finished work, not by the human work that we can conjure up. And so ultimately, through this gospel truth, it's not by our efforts. It's not by our works. It's not by our skills. It's not by how good we do or following less of this or more of that, by, but by the incredible grace of a God who pursues busted up sinful people like you and I. And so let me just tell you that, that this important truth of the gospel, that whatever enslaves you, whatever has mastered you, whatever has ruled over you, whatever sin you struggle with, Jesus has come to set you free. This is why the Father sent him to the cross. That the Father has extended his grace to us by placing Jesus in the gap, in the great chasm between us and God, making him the way to relationship with the Father. And so this is what scripture tells us, that Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So then by Jesus's works, we are saved. It's not by our own works. It's not by believing that we can do all that we can do. It's by believing in Jesus's works. So then we are set free then to live in this grace as a, as a gospel grace. So ultimately what that means is that for us, we're not living on graded living. We're living on gospel living, on the works of Jesus, not our own works. And so in verse seven, Paul says that as God extends his grace and we're saved and reconciled to him, it's that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Think about that for a moment. The immeasurable riches of his grace. So if you, if you think you know grace, you don't really know grace. It, it is absolutely immeasurable. And, and the truth is that God's desire in all of this is to point us back to him that he shows the, the immeasurable riches of his grace through Jesus. Not, not through your works, but through Jesus. And, and just think about this for a moment. That it pleased the Father to pierce the Son to redeem you. That it pleased the Father to pierce the Son to redeem you. That he gave up his only Son to extend grace to you. So rather than wipe us out, he chose to wash us clean. So now then what we have, how this becomes gospel grace is that now we're, now we're talking about blood-bought grace. So it isn't graded living, it's gospel living. 
based on the grace of God. And so God's grace really then becomes the, the motivation and the freedom to really live in Christ. So it's, it's no longer a, a, a license to sin. It's, it's not the idea that, man, God's grace is all the more for me. It's immeasurable. So I can just keep on sinning. I can keep on going in my own life and just get the grace of God when I want. No, no, no. It, it gives us freedom to depend on Christ, not our own dependence. And so really the reformers saw this important truth as something that needed to be alone, that it needed to be grace alone. And I don't want you to miss this because this piece is really important that the grace of God points us to the gospel, which is God's redemptive work in Christ. That the grace of God points us to the gospel, which is God's redemptive work in Christ. But let's be honest that although I just repeated that sentence for you, it's a whole lot easier for me to say it, a whole lot easier for, for you to hear it than to receive it, than to embrace it. See, I think often our, our default position as strugglers is to really believe that God is disappointed and frustrated with us. That, that we just kind of have this, this mindset that he's just simply tolerating us. And, and so really there's nothing we do. So here's the piece that we, we really struggle to believe that whether difficult days or good days that God is at work. But the reality is that he is at work. And he has not abandoned you in these difficult seasons. And yet grace is so difficult to understand. I mean, even for me, I, I can explain grace theologically. Yesterday, in, in part of my study, I grabbed my uh, theology book that's this thick, and I open up to the portion of grace that's uh, almost 20 pages thick, double-sided, and I can, I can walk you through the theological uh, foundations of grace, of understanding it. We can talk about Bonhoeffer's view of cheap grace and costly grace. We can talk about all of these aspects of the reformer's view. I can, I can understand grace from a stance of knowledge and intellect. And we can talk about this all day long. But personally, I struggle deeply to embrace grace from a soul level. The only piece that really matters. That's the piece I struggle with. So let me share with you an illustration that's really helped me this week and uh, uh, wrecked me and freed me because that's kind of how God works in my life. He just wrecks me in my thinking and he frees me to just more fully follow him. That really for me, being a dad has given me a glimpse and I, I mean a glimpse because I'll never fully understand the relationship between us and God as God understands. But it gives me a glimpse in being a father to understand the, the heart of God and every morning, um, my, one of us will go up, uh, go downstairs, grab uh, my son, and, and bring him up to the other, which is just a fun way to be woken up moments before the alarm. And, and I mean that. Um, hearing my son run up the stairs and uh, come to wake me up is just such a gift. And then we'll go to walk downstairs because that's usually pretty early and, and dad needs coffee. Um, and so we'll go to the staircase and um, standing at the top of the stairs is Micah just waiting. I'm going, dude, just take a step forward. Let, let's go down the stairs. Hey, let's go down. Dad needs coffee. Let's do this. And, and he doesn't. He'll wait there. And, and you can almost see the, 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 the thinking process for him, that he's concerned with the stairs. He's kind of filled with fear. He's, he's never fallen before, but he's full of fear of falling. 
and he's trying to communicate, but he's struggling. Like, I, I don't, I don't think I can do this. Like, I'm not sure, but you know, almost like if he could communicate, like you go down, I'll be there soon. You know, he doesn't feel confident. And in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of just trying to communicate and figure out, man, I'm kind of not sure if I can make this. I just grab his hand and walk him down the stairs. And, and usually the conversation goes that, uh, that I'll usually just say, listen, I've got you. I've got you. It's okay, buddy. I've got this. And I won't fall. I won't fall. And so with his hand in mind, with that confidence, when he, he fully is then putting his confidence in me, he just leaps down the stairs. He's almost just like cruising, like dad's got me. I'm not going to fall. And, and see, I think so often we try harder to explain and define the staircase of life than to reach for the hand of the Father. We try to explain it theologically, emotionally, physically. We try so hard to earn and to win over God rather than just receive his grace. Thinking that, man, if I, if I win over God, then he'll extend his hand. Which is foolish because his hand is out there. Saying, I've, I've got this. I won't fall. I've got you. That his grace is what frees us from having to win his favor. Because God is gracious. That is the character of God. That we don't have to do things in order to make him gracious. He just is a gracious God. And so this frees us from the endless cycle of doing more and more simply because we hope to appease God. And so really receiving his grace means that that we're embracing that God loves us eternally more than we could ever, ever comprehend or measure. And I think another incredible thing about God's grace that we need to understand is that grace also enables us to serve God without fear. See, so often we wonder if, man, am I, am I praying enough? Am I witnessing enough? Am I serving enough to make God happy? Now, let me, let me just help you out here with this, that that's not something I assume for you. That's something that for me, I struggle with. So often I just struggle with that idea when I get into my own head, man, am I praying enough? Am I witnessing enough? Am I serving enough to make God happy? And and the answer to that is no, I'm not doing enough. We're not doing enough, which is why putting ourselves on a performance standard will never satisfy you and it'll never satisfy God. But, But here's the piece you need to understand in order to make this switch. If you understand that the Father accepts you on a basis of what Jesus has done, then you can rest in Christ's works, not your own. Because it never has been about your works. That's why grace is extended to you, not a list of dues. So this morning, can I just encourage you to do something? Can I, can I encourage you to take a bold step this morning and take the hand of the Father and begin to walk with him? that when you believe and when you trust in the works of Jesus, grace has been extended to you. His hand is reaching out. It always has been. And so our response to him in that is only because he is reaching out to us. That it's his grace that frees us, his grace that sustains us, and his grace alone that saves us. Let's pray.